Hey, just a heads up. The episode you're about to listen to this week is Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. It's directed by Jack Shoulder and written by David Chaskin. The episode includes descriptions of extreme body horror, sexual harassment and abuse occasionally aimed towards minors, and the sexualization of violence. After the music, we'll talk about the movie in full, so expect spoilers! Oh, and while you're here, if you can, stop by our Patreon at progressivelyhorrified.patreon.com. You'll get extra episodes, all episodes a week early, and most importantly, if you decide to support us, you'll get to help us keep the lights on. We'd greatly appreciate it. Now, let's get on to the show. Okay, let's... Yeah, hell yeah. No worries. Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we own horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. Tonight, we're kicking off Pride Month by talking about a slasher sequel which has, in its own way, become more controversial and notorious than the original. It's Nightmare on Elm Street 2 of Freddy's Revenge. And along with it, we'll be talking about the documentary about it, Scream, comma, Queen, my Nightmare on Elm Street. I am your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight, I have a panel of cinephiles and cinebites. First, they're here to invade your house and find queer content in all your favorite movies. My co-host and comic book writer, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? Of all the details in this movie that I have not been able to stop thinking about, by far at the top of the list is that the cereal that this family is eating is called Food <laughs> Man Chew C-H-E-W. I know that's a very tiny detail to start out on, but it blew my fucking mind with just its less than three notes about that. Yeah. yeah. It's like actual background racism that they went out of their way to make. It might as well be Cheddar Goblin. Speaking of which, we picked her up at the spooky crossroads of anime and sexy monster media. It's co-host and comics artist Emily Martin. How are you tonight, Emily? I'm feeling like I've never seen the idiom trying to play it straight so like exemplified and or have i have not seen it be as applicable in my life Mm. because this is a gay movie about a guy who kisses a girl yeah well we'll talk a lot more about that yes especially (laughs) in reference to the documentary uh but also before we get to that along with our usual gang we have a friend of the show host of deep space dive Alana Levin. Alana, how are you? I'm excited to talk about this movie. I uh, I think when you guys had me on to talk about Nightmare on Elm Street, I was like, but what if we could talk about Nightmare on Elm Street 2 instead? <laughs> <laughs> You're mentioning the Fu Manchu's like, completely racist cereal thing. Oh, yeah. From the breakfast scene. Like The reason they're doing that is because they like to have that shot of that younger sister with the long, fake fingernails that are the toy that came in the box of cereal. And like, there's a million ways they could have had that, which is, you know, visually reminiscing of Freddy, right? With the yes. pants. Yeah. They exactly. could have done that with having it be like spooky witch nails or something. Like, there's no reason it had to be like Fu Manchu. Yeah. But like, that is why they did that. Just be like a Count Chocula type witch thing. Yeah. 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 It would have been so much less bizarre and less. But bizarre. it's the 80s. They were just really proud of that, like, racist wordplay. The, 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 it was made in 1971. It was round. Yeah, and I think that this is an example of just how rushed the movie was because people weren't really thinking about these decisions, you know? 
first of all, aside from the fucking racist ass shit, who wants chewy cereal? Fuman right. Crunch. That's nasty. Yeah, you want food? Yeah, you want food man crunch? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I love about this movie is that if you go to its Wikipedia article, right off the bat, under reception, there's two sections. One critical response to homoerotic subtext. <laughs> subtext? Homoerotic subtext has its own section in the Wikipedia page. I mean, yeah, I mean, this, this is going to be the bulk of our discussion, I think. So let's go ahead and get the basics out of the way. Yes. It's directed by Jack Shoulder, who you may know from directing Alone in the Dark or the Generation X TV movie which blew my mind. I have not thought about that thing in a good 10 years. Mm -hmm. It is also written by David Chaskin, who's most famous, I think, for writing aloud 21 Jump Street. And it stars Mark Patton in the lead role. Also, Kim Myers as his girlfriend. And uh, Robert England reprising his role as Freddie. IMDb describes this as, a teenage boy is haunted by his dreams by deceased child murderer Freddy Krueger, who was out to possess him in order to continue his reign of terror in the real world. And, uh, Alana, I know, like, like you said, you'd been dying to talk about this one basically since we talked to you about the first one. Uh, what is it about this film that, that you love so much that you wanted to talk about? It's funny. I was actually aware of the documentary about the film before I saw the film. I, uh, I was introduced to the documentary, Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, because I was at FlameCon, uh, at the year that they were finishing making it and Mark Patton had a booth there and I was intrigued by the like the title and so this poor guy had to literally explain to me like the movie and also that there would be a documentary about the movie's phenomenon and I was like I haven't even seen this movie but I'm really sold about your documentary it's such an interesting illustration of the gap between the actual queer experience what heterosexual people fear about the queer experience and like just the imagination and what's difference between playing with queer themes versus like what it is to like be lived and embodied as a queer person. I feel like I'm getting ahead of myself a bit on that, but I think there's like, especially in light of like the world right now, it feels like there's a lot to be said about all of that. Yeah. We don't know what the state of the world is going to be when you're listening to it, but it's bad. I mean, it's been bad. It's, yeah, that's unlikely to change, like, for the foreseeable future. Yeah. No matter when you listen to this listener, even far in the future, I'm just going to assume you're also dealing with bad times. And this movie does have some things to say about identity, and I feel like identity is the thing that it's trying to talk about. There's a lot of things that are trying to happen in this film and that's sort of the the long and the short of it i think for this movie is that whether or not it is progressive about how gay it is it is just so confused by its just in its own being that it really isn't saying much either way it's just the film itself it has an identity crisis I, i think an important thing to know about this movie going in is that Nightmare on Elm Street, A Nightmare on Elm Street, the original, came out in 1984 and basically is the reason that New Line Cinema still exists because it did so well that this, you know, little independent company like just blew up overnight. And so naturally, they decided to capitalize on that by having Nightmare on Elm Street 2 come out in 1985. They discuss in the documentary that like they were filming 
the pool scene that is the climax of this movie on the 4th of July in 1985. And the movie was coming out on Thanksgiving. Like it was that much of a rush to get everything done. Wow. I mean, I feel like this movie is very much cemented a place in horror movie history for its queer subtext or queer text, I should say. Yeah. But I feel like stripped of that, it's not a particularly great sequel to Nightmare on Elm Street. No. Like, even just, like, the main thing I kept going back to is just, why isn't Freddy killing people in dreams? That's his well, thing. Should... Yeah. It's, it's just like, I, I'm just imagining being an audience in 1985 being like, it's like, that's what was so great. Like, it set him apart. And it was in a premise that inherently yielded itself to every single kill being wildly inventive and creative and unpredictable. And it was just something that set the first movie so far apart with that focus on sleep versus awakeness. And I liked like what this could have done by really blurring those lines and adding in like and being unsure of what's real and what's not. But he just doesn't kill people in the dreams. He just wants to slash him up in the real world. And that's, oh no, we got lots of other villains who slash people up with knives in the real world. Freddy's the only dream murderer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Despite having a whole template of the movie that came before, this movie has like very little coherence in terms of the rules and the stakes and, you know, what means what. Because the last movie, that is to say the original Nightmare on Elm Street, had like two or three endings in the movie, not including the endings that were not included in the movie, but... Him turning into that car fucking rules. What an amazing <laughs> way to end that first movie. I love it. the Freddy car. Yeah. Fantastic. And, and so they have this sort of open-ended situation, and then this movie kind of is trying really... I mean, I've seen movies really fail at being sequels where they're like, oh, this happened once, I guess, whatever. But this movie is trying really hard to be a sequel, but just can't get its hands on it. Uh, Interesting. It is linked by being set in the same house. Like he, yeah. uh, our, our main character, uh, Jesse moves into with his family, the house, uh, that was previously killing people where, you know, Nancy used to live and his dad apparently knew all about this but didn't tell any of the rest of the his family dad fucking sucks yeah reaganite suburban rumor bullshit dad and i'm so mad that he receives no comeuppance during the film except for a parakeet scratches him oh no a parakeet yeah like they didn't give a shit about those birds i'm mad about that fox yeah, they gave that like they were like, oh, shh, the bird's sleeping, and then the bird is like flying around the room. This is a this is a love bird. This is like a bird that's the size of okay. I don't know. This this is gonna make no sense to anybody who hasn't. We haven't talked about it. Birds are the DNA explode. Catch uh, up. Okay, <laughs> the 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 plot of this and why it doesn't particularly follow the original nightmares formula very well is that rather than having a group of kids on the street where, you know, Freddy was murdered by their parents, experience nightmares where he exists and then kill them. This is isolated to Jesse, this one kid um, who is having these nightmares in which Freddy attacks him or he meets Freddy or he turns into Freddy 
And slowly over the course of the movie, it becomes more and more him turning into Freddy and Freddy acting through him and then killing people in the real world. There's also a lot of bits and pieces that don't make any sense. Like Emily was referencing, they have a pair of parakeets in the house that at one point go insane and start attacking them and then explode, like literally explode. Not gonna lie, that part's pretty great. There's a recurring issue where the house gets really hot, which I assume is, I assume the house getting really hot is supposed to have something to do with the fact that Freddy is somehow linked to the boiler in this house and they, he keeps seeing him down there at the furnace. Yeah. I think other than just being hints that Freddy is there, yeah, that goes nowhere despite them bringing up the temperature multiple times. Yeah. And I mean, yes, it is in, I assume it's in Southern California because there's like deserts everywhere or whatever. <laughs> the deserts of Ohio. No, that the, the truck hits some Joshua trees. So no matter yeah. where it is, you're like literally destroying some of my favorite wildlife, which is definitely only in California. Well, I mean, shit's melting. So I was like, it's either there or Arizona. And then the, the bus ends up in like Bryce Canyon and that's Utah. Mm-hmm. Why did I always, okay. I'm like, I don't know why, but I always imagine it's like in Indiana suburbs. I mean, don't ask it, me why. Because it's, it's eerie. Ohio. That's where the, um, oh, okay. Town so is supposedly it's, exists. There but is it is very much built in Southern California. <laughs> Good to know. So yeah, we start with Jesse getting on a bus. I feel like in the scene when you see him getting on the bus, he looks really pained and awkward in the beginning. And like, he has the sense that he's this weirdo outsider, but that's his dream. Once you actually yeah. see him in school, He's not like this weird kid who everybody hates. Like this girl likes him, you know, you know what I mean? Like when he's in his own head, he has a lot less self-esteem for who he is in relation to his peers. than he like, actually, like he doesn't look as he did, like when you first begin to the movie, you're like, oh, look at that nerd. And then when the movie yeah. is in earnest, you're like, oh, he's actually not a nerd. He's like normal. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, that was the biggest plot twist of the movie was me realizing that, oh, Grady isn't the bully piece of shit character. Yeah, like this movie, it's trying to be so many different things. Like Grady, I guess is supposed to be the rude jock, but he's actually like the best friend who asks fucking Jesse out multiple times on screen. That's Um, such a great observation, though, that he envisions himself as like this total outsider and this very isolated person, even though in real life he moves into this new town and instantly has like people crushing on him and like he's befriending popular people i think like it's such a specifically like closeted gay person thing to be like they all think i'm a weirdo and it's like no not and maybe they don't actually you know what i mean like like that was really telling it's the kind of thing that's honestly so brilliant i wonder if they knew how smart it was i don't think this movie knows anything about itself no, I mean, it's a very I deliberate think, yeah. decision because he is made up completely differently in, the, in this opening that's scene. Yes, that's he's made up like a weird, like a weird goth kid. And, yeah, uh, it's literally a new wave kid. Yeah, and then by the time we actually get to like him during daylight hours in the movie, he basically looks like you know New Hope age Mark Hamill. He's a teen heartthrob. He's a you know he looks like he could be the could be in was it yeah. Specifically, one of the the girl magazines at the time. Right. Uh, 17. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. YM, young and modern. Is that in the 80s? I don't know. Playgirl? Burt Reynolds? Teen Vogue. Playgirl is for, well, could be for some teens, but um, anyway. Yeah, the cool ones. So 
we're in the bus. It's a nightmare. There, the bus drives into Joshua Tree and then to Bryce Canyon and then to Hell. It's a dream. <laughs> um, <laughs> splitting open, I think, is one of the better effects of the movie. It's something imaginative and interesting and cool and unique. And it happens in a fucking dream where the horror of Nightmare on Elm Street is supposed to happen. Yeah. And all you get in the real world is like slashy glove and the pool bubbles. There is the, the like, body horror I, happens in real life, essentially. Yeah, yeah. The body yeah, horror the happens body in real life. I got no complaints about the body horror. The the coach died as I assume he wanted to. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Coach. The coach oh. definitely died as he wanted to. It was uh, drowned in balls and then spanked to death. Um, that was the best death of the movie. <laughs> I, I'm the best death in any movie. What are you talking about? He was like, "What happened, this man?" I was like. He took a lot of balls to the face and then got tied up in the shower and beat with a, you know, whipped with a uh, towel until he oh, died. He died the <laughs> way he lived. For real. So, yeah. So Jesse's Jesse is dreaming that he's in the bus in hell. And, you know, maybe it's just global, global warming. I think it's just global warming. And this is a comment I, on I do global warming. They do, they do a thing I always like, which is the bus driver is Robert England. And then he becomes Freddy, which is like, oh, like, oh you see Robert good. England, you're like, this bus driver doesn't look right. Uh, he looks creepy. That's a oh. great detail. Speaking of the coach, before we fully get to him and where we eventually see him later in the movie, can we appreciate that this Ohio suburb has a thriving gay nightclub or gay S&M club? I don't know if that yes. club is thriving. Apparently it's filled. But it's very, it's actually very popular gay nightclub oh cool yeah that's a real that was one of the points that they pointed out to the people who were in denial to you know the director who's like oh i didn't intend any but they're like dude this was literally shot in a gay nightclub in la when they're like oh i didn't know when they're like oh i didn't i'm so tired of these homophobes homoerotic themes and i'm like how much of this movie is jesse wearing nothing but tidy whities drenched in sweat yeah like all of it. And you know what? That wasn't because he told you to do it. Like basically, I, I, I basically there's this whole thing where this movie comes out. There's a lot of people basically arguing that, oh, this is really queer and they're acute, but like in a in, in negative. They're like, oh, this is so gay. And they're blaming it all on the actor who basically forcibly recloseted himself. Like he was, you know, mostly closeted, but kind of out professionally a little bit, and then completely got to closet himself because of the homophobic response from fans. And the the director and screenwriter of the movie basically blamed it on him saying, oh, it's gay because Mark Padden was just so gay. He couldn't help but like flouncing all over this movie when like actually the movie itself is extremely subtextually gay. The movie the, is about Freddy Krueger trying to get into the body of a young, sweaty teen. Of a handsome young man. Like, yes. He said, yeah. I want to be inside you. I'm your dad now or I'm Not your daddy. Thing. I've got the body, or you've got the body, I've got the brain. There is literally a scene where Jesse goes to a gay S&M club. Yeah. And the suburbs on a weeknight. Was that the actor's idea? I don't fucking think it was. And it's so easy for them to just sort of put it on him. Basically, it's a movie that has a lot of queer subtext that was made by homophobes and is sort of like has something interesting in the heart of it despite of itself is what I would say. That is it, wild and watching yeah. Screen Queen is super interesting because it is 
it follows Mark Patton and he talks a lot about his own story. And I, I think this is as good a place as any to kind of talk about that because part of his like journey in this is he really wants to confront David Chaskin, who's the writer of the mm-hmm. movie. Cause Jack Shoulder, who directed it, his policy seems to be to play dumb. Oh, I didn't yes. know there was subtext. Oh, I didn't know it was gay. Oh, that was just the club oh, that gay. scouted for this. I don't, you know. And he's playing dumb with a big fucking smile on his face. And David Chaskin <clears throat> has had several interviews about it where he has said like, oh, basically it comes down to, oh, it was supposed to be subtext, but Mark is so gay that everything just played as gay instead of subtextual. Grady is introduced pulling down Jesse's pants and underwear so another character can then stare at him and go, nice ass. Yeah, I mean, that is, the girl, it is a girl that says he has a nice ass, but he is, like, tackled crotch first, where, like, Grady literally jumps into his crotch. Like, they're trying to no, do no. a fusion dance. They didn't know there was subtext. Do we need to describe the coach's death again? Yeah. So this movie, like for this blaming the gayness on the main actor who is constantly sexualized by the camera, like he's not coming in going, oh my God, you know, like he's, he kisses a woman and uh, he's, it's he's not a, a lot of, not a great kiss. It's not, it, it, it's, it's a pretty awkward film kiss. It is an awkward uncomfortable thing in the movie. Yeah, they do not look like they know how to do this. I mean, which I guess makes sense because they're teens. I guess it's the only bone I throw this movie. But I throw it in the queer subtext. Sure, Uh, yeah. Like, like, you know, I'm looking at that being like, uh, this is like when uh, she has sex with the boyfriend in Jennifer's body and then she goes into Jennifer and she has a way better, you're like, sexier time yeah yeah it's it's a one of those identity crisis kind of how i interpreted yeah one of those moments Mm -hmm. which is very applicable not having great chemistry (laughs) yeah well where i'm going here is this movie sexualizes the main character there's a lot of close-ups of the character's butt like he has this little dance that he's doing to his new wave and like he's like like jamming his booty into the the shelf and everything and then he does this dance yeah. where super, he like super close it's a cleaning your room sequence and they were going yeah. to go they're trying to go for like a tom cruise risky business kind of thing yeah but yeah they didn't they didn't achieve that that's not on that's really not on the actor that's like on the choreographer and director it's so scummy of them to put that on the actor that's like if phantom menace george Luzi come out and said Actually, the reason why you hated Jar Jar is because Ahmed Best like did a terrible job. Yeah, exactly. Think about like in his dance sequence, he like pops off like a firecracker thing as the hot girl comes into the bedroom. Like in a different kind of production of contracts, that would be like extremely heterosexual, right? And yet I've heard people refer to that particular moment as being particularly gay. And I'm like, well, I mean, I guess it's particularly bisexual potentially, but like... This is a person miming, like, with a visual metaphor of ejaculation when the hot girl comes, so. Yeah. The music selection for it was pretty good, though. I will give them that. Well, well it is. Probably being pretty gay. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say, like, this, you know, the music selection ain't no risky business here. The coach is a particularly problematic element in this movie. Oh, so mm-hmm. problematic. Because mm-hmm. there's this initial fight between the two boys, and he takes them aside and decides to make them go 
I'm not sure if they're supposed to be doing push-ups in the field or they're just supposed to be planking. They're like planking. They're like planking. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They, I know they just have to go sit out there. They just have to go stand out there in the field and do this for a while. And like, as they're doing this, he is asking Grady about the coach and the coach is like, oh, he hangs out at the gay S&M joint uptown. He loves pretty boys like you. Which and I've then like, we didn't know Grady go was to like the gay S&M joint later. He's there. And I guess it's supposed to bust Mark or bust. Jen yeah. For, for underage drinking. Under this seems like it should yeah. be a neutral busting. Like, this seems like a yeah. assured destruction kind of thing. Yeah. And instead, the coach makes him go run laps and then uh, creeps creeps on him a bit in the shower before uh, he gets the to the full-on The implication I had was that Yeah. The implication I got was that he was absolutely going to rape Jesse. Like, yeah. I thought I when he starts pulling out, like, the jump rope and stuff like that, like, I'm like, oh, oh this is, like, I thought, like, oh, that's how far this is going to go. Or how far he intends to take it. Yeah, there was definitely a menace about the coach, especially since he was just shitty to them the whole time. But, like, you know, I was it, not expecting the movie to go so far as to make the coach literally, like, a patron of the S&M club and then fucking break all the S&M rules. In terms <laughs> of depicting gay people as violent, sadomasochistic, like monsters, this portrayal is right in line with Zed in Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. Like that's yeah the level of just that's the level of gay men depict like just being de so dehumanized and just this is some of the just the worst of society's hatred towards queer people. Yeah, not only is the coach depicted as you know kind of a weirdo and all this kind of stuff, but he's also depicted as a predator yeah like, hey what do you do with a movie where the only queer content of that era is wildly homophobic yep yeah I mean, the nightmare on elm street 2 story yeah i mean like basically like you have this you, you know there's a movie which is full of queer subtext and it's all because the the screenplay is basically writing the notion of wouldn't it be scary if there was something inside you that wanted to make you be gay? And within the context, especially of this coming out in the mid eighties, where like HIV was extremely rampant, everybody, if, if you came out to your parents, they'd probably be like, oh, I, you're going to get AIDS and die. That would be like their number one fucking thing they would verbalize to you. Yeah. And so being queer is seen as this like a moral, not just a moral panic, but a, a, a panic to your direct physical health. And so you have these like straight people who are like, wouldn't it be scary if there was something inside you that was forcing you to be gay? Wouldn't that be horrific? And then, of course, the reality is for actual queer people, it's like, no, we actually are gay. And the only horror story is you guys doing that to us. And so it's like this really weird in this really weird space where like, you know, you can like look at this as being a piece of film that is really sort of campy and queer in a lot of ways. But it's all because it's being set up in this like homophobic framework. And the thing is that the screenwriter and the director, they both refuse to engage seriously with the implications of the story they're telling. So they like want to be able to be like, ooh, look how risque and edgy we are. And like they basically say this in the documentary. They're like, oh, it's so risque and edgy that we're talking about these things. But then they don't want to acknowledge at all like how that intersects in the lives of actual real people who are queer. 
And so that's the difference between something like this and something like, you know, Rocky Horror, which is like actually made by queer people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, like yeah. You, night, or, or Hellraiser, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, in the op- it's like a completely different thing. I think it's, it's so bizarre too, in that so often the text of the script and of what's happening are so at odds with the visuals because like this mm-hmm. coach death scene, like when he, he busts him at the club and then makes him run around and t- tells him to go take a shower and there's every implication that the coach is about to do something horrible. You know, Jesse is sitting there showering by himself and the coach gets sort of tied up by these jump ropes and dragged across the floor and tied up in the shower and like. They really sexualize his death in a way that is usually reserved for teenage women in horror. Any school-age listeners we might have, I don't care what crimes your teacher busts you, like, for doing. They cannot force you to just take a shower by yourself at night, like. Or run laps or any of that after school. The, the amount of power that this teacher exercises over the students is unusual, even for the 80s, you know, when people were taking communal showers and or, you know, kids were possibly still taking communal showers in high school. Um, You're like drinking wine and a teacher catches you with wine and they're like, oh, I'm going to tell the principal about the wine unless you go take a shower right now. You'd be like, fuck no, you creep. Tell about the wine. I'm going to tell him you tried to make a teenager shower, you goddamn fucking weirdo. There, were, now you've won. People were yeah. carting people for drinks in 1985, right? Alicia, I will absolutely understand if you just cut all of this. I mean, the drinking age was 18 in most places. Okay. And 21 in some places, 18 in other places. So, I mean, almost no matter what, like, yeah, this, this kid should be carded. Yeah. Yeah. He's not 18. He's like, he's like 16, 17. Yeah. And he but shows up in the club and they give him alcohol without carding him. And that's when the teacher busts okay. him. Okay. This yeah. is the wildest moment. And arguably maybe the evilest character in the movie is <laughs> this bartender that pours beer in an old fashioned glass. To fuck with the kid, or maybe this is just the movie not understanding how things work. Instead, if only just the sheer balls of like you charge full price and then only poured him half of the beer. He was trying to pace him, you know. That's what I'm thinking. He was trying to pace him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so instead of carding him, like that blew my mind. The beer in the old fashioned glass. <laughs> you need a little bit of you know the frothy cap. But seriously though, okay, this is actually this is all serious, Jesse is living in this house where nancy lived from nightmare one and glenn is nowhere to be found because he's dead or whatever i think he turned into jelly in the last one which is sad in his bed yeah he got mulched in his bed yeah even though it's the same writer as 21 drum street but i guess you know jd couldn't do multiple things at once but anyway (sighs) hashtag make it stop (laughs) oh my god uh, so we, we get a discovery of Nancy's diary by Lisa and Jesse at one point, uh, you know, and, and it's read in sort of an erotic way by Jesse to start with, <laughs> of like this man that she's being followed by and, you know, is after her. They're jumping around between her talking about her boyfriend across the street and how hot he is and then yeah. talking about Freddie and her dreams because they, they don't really like it, She's clearly talking about two different people, but they don't realize it. And so yeah. like, you have this sort of transition between her then sort of like reading 
her erotic description of her boyfriend and then talking about Freddie. And this is after the dream sequence where Jesse sees Freddie and Freddie's like, I want your body. Yeah. And, and there's yeah. no subtext. The, the, the queer subtext was an accident. Yeah, surely I well, people all, find the actual. All, we'll find the glove in the furnace, uh, you know, and, and keep just wandering around with that, despite the fact that he doesn't want to be possessed by Freddie. This is also where we get the exploding parakeets. They, a uh, free knife glove is a free knife glove. Sure. Yeah. I, and you I, can cut vegetables. Just imagine like swish, swish, vegetables ready. I want to talk about these exploding birds because sure. the birds aren't really in the movie much, but they make a point to be like, shh, tiny bird is sleeping. And then Freddy's power of melting shit shows up. And one of the birds is already dead. And the other one like gets out and is flying around the room. And this family has a fucking conniption fit and tries to fucking kill their bird with a broom. Zero hesitation. They're like, this bird is out of its cage. It must die. Yeah. And it scratches the dad on the cheek. And then it's coming at people and like knocking shit down like it's some sort of menace. But this is a... I, I I think it's technically a love bird. It might as well it, be a budget. Yeah. No, it's scary. You're knocking over lambs. Yeah. I've seen the birds, and this is not the birds. Yeah, this is not the bird. That's this is dead. half a bird. Which is the worst thing that happens to the dad in the whole movie, which makes me concerned that this movie wants us to agree with the dead. Which is kind of basically if, if Ward Cleaver was a serial killer. Like, yeah. The only thing to agree with the dad on in this whole movie. That I'm with him on Jesse needing to clean his room. That's a shitload of yeah. boxes. Come on, Jesse. Yeah, like Jesse's like, I'm gonna go out and see a girl. And the dad, the dad's like, No, you have to dance in your room first. I don't want my son to be gay. I mean, shit. You know, like it almost is like he's like, Oh, no, I'd rather you girls until you've done your queer dances. Yes, <laughs> until you literally pop off with your little fucking popper. I just made a. A gesture that is basically what that was. You know um, what gesture she made. You know, wink. So, yeah, Freddie wants Jesse to kill for him. And I guess that means that he wants to possess Jesse. And that leads to... All of these are red flags in a relationship, by the way. Well, yeah. And the, it really is unfortunate in the way that it kind of shows that Jesse is weak to freddy's power because gay question mark mm -hmm. and you want to talk about the tender moment that he has with freddy next to the stairwell freddy is mm -hmm. literally caressing him with his knife glove down the side of his face and apparently according to everybody involved in that on one take had the idea of having him put one of the knives into Jesse's mouth in this section. And luckily we were spared that bit. Because the makeup, the makeup guy pulled Mark Patton aside and was like, do not let him do this to you. This would be very bad. And Mark was like, oh yeah, no, you're right. You know, thank God the makeup artists, queers looking out for queers, do not let them do that. Animals don't explode into flames for no reason. I hate the dad. Yeah, he's just immediately trying to kill that poor bird. Well, also, he just immediately jumps straight to, like, Jesse, you must have made our bird spontaneously combust. Yeah, that's just, fucking rude. Jesse, why did your gayness make the bird explode? Because he was so, he was flaming. No, birds are allergic yeah. to gayness. 
You don't know thing. Is this why Freddy has heat powers? Is because he's also flaming? Oh, I love it. I think I love it. Freddy is like actually possessing the house in this movie. Yeah. Well, he seems to have like an area of effect, right? With the melting and then the party. Like when he does have an area of effect. Yeah. In the first one, it's like genealogical, right? Like it's the kids of the people who burned him, literally burned him. And this one is like, uh, well, I guess you live here now. I thought it worked kind of similar to Candyman where like the belief of Freddy propagates Freddy. I think the belief of Freddy helps. But don't you hate it when lightning like hits your dishes through the window? It makes me go to an S&M club every time it happens. Yeah, I remember in the 80s when like God was like, hey, wait, you okay. need to respond to your gay instinct. Fuck this plate in particular. Yeah. Where we can go to the club, though, we have to have him wake up super sweaty and tidy whities again. And again, where was his agent being there being like, put him in boxers? Like, yeah. boxers and let's kill let's kill the sweat by half for all of this shit given to the actor every mm-hmm. other dude in this movie is wearing tiny short shorts yes like, every other it's a of the time period yeah it is but like that's true it, maybe no one was wearing boxers in the 80s i don't know i wasn't there uh fucking grady was wearing boxers. wasn't he wearing boxers in his room yeah grady's fucking awesome I don't think he was short. But look, Tom Cruise was wearing was wearing briefs in the risky business. Like, yeah, but you know, I works with the button down. Okay, but like that, it's not unusual that they were all wearing briefs. That is what I'm saying. No, yeah, that's that's valid because yes, it is. Um, I have been flat for my anti tidy whitey bias, and I will accept that. Oh, I'm also anti tidy whiteys, and I, I grew up on them, so you know. But no, like it's the 80s. That's not unusual. I mean, it's just really the way the camera tends to focus on his body. Sometimes we'll do very strange angles to like. If you were trying to this movie not be explicitly queer, you would make none of the decisions that the filmmakers make. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like his tits are always out. Even when he's fucked up, even the lighting balance makes his tits look incredibly voluptuous yeah i mean like i don't know there was something about how it was lit how it was shot how like there was particular shadowing on his package like you could not avoid that and there's no way joel schumacher wasn't influenced by this movie (laughs) at least right (laughs) what if this but on purpose Except the characters in the Joel Schumacher movie aren't, like, as tits out. Hold on to it. We'll be talking about Joel Schumacher in one week. Okay, sounds good. I'm so excited for you. Me too. Mm -hmm. Get ready for a lot of 24 jokes, because that's my main experience with Keith or Sutherland. Oh. Oh, boy. No, before he was that, he was the other. It was better before. Well, the best Um, Sutherland movie will also be... The YouTube video where he gets drunk and tackles a Christmas tree. I don't know about that, but that sounds amazing. It is amazing. I've seen it and it's great. But also we can't forget about flatliners <laughs> or the three musketeers. He was in that, right? Everybody. I, that. Oh yeah, he was. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Okay. So yeah, lightning hits a window. You go to a, you go to a S&M club for some reason. Your teacher's there. 
He takes you to your back to school. We talk about this part, drowns and falls, whatever. We all been there. Yeah. Like, you can't sleep. You go to the local S&M club. Your teacher's there. Remember in the 80s when your teacher would bust you for drinking half a beer out of a a brandy glass or some shit and then make you run laps around the basketball court inside and then the teacher would get attacked by balls. Well, so, the, the setup and writing of this sequence is about the level of a porno plot. Yeah, well, s- calling it a plot is kind of a lot, but yeah, it's a porno setup. Um, he's tied up by the, the jump ropes. He is, has his clothes forcibly ripped off by an invisible hand. And uh, Mark watches all of this from the steam of the shower until he uh, sort of walks out like mark is there and also sort of freddie is there and then there's the glove and uh you know scratches down the the coach's back and the coach is dead it's a little unclear how some of this happens and who's actually involved but mark uh comes to and notices that he is quite the coach is quite dead and uh runs out into the night i mean i was picked up by some police i mean i was baffled by just a smash cutting from the bar to jesse in the gym and just assume this is too sudden a transition this must be a dream sequence right yeah kind of like how far went you made him get in your car how far did you drive you unlocked the keys to the gym you turned on all the lights like this is such a complicated time saving process for this weird sadomasochism like ritual he has yeah so he like that's the thing is i was thinking about it like okay so we have this crazy smash cut bar gym right in that time dude had to have convinced uh jesse to come with him driven him to the school set up everything in the school turned everything on and then had jesse and this we come in as jesse is finishing his laps and going to take a shower during this time this entire time dude is still in his leather getup. like i'm probably just full of tire yeah, dude gives no fucks, I guess. Someone may have, in the process of creating and setting this whole scene up, been like, this is what he gets for like being gay. But now, these days, it's like, yeah, he got what he wanted in life, which was to be a sub to Freddy Krueger. Like, who does it? It can't uh, be overstated how much of a predator he has played at, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I, oh, my God. Like, yeah. He is, this coach is given not a single shred of humanity. He is a remorseless monster whose death we are supposed to rejoice in. Yeah. The whole relationship of this movie with sports is sort of interesting. I watched the movie with my husband who observed that all of the balls that were thrown were thrown by like either stuntmen or other people were not thrown well. And he's like, but if anybody wants to make that about Mark, Mark didn't throw any of them. So I'm like, I'm like, that's a good insight. I appreciate your feedback on the baseball playing. I so that was about the most heterosexual thing that was happened around that movie. But um, but it made me think about this because there's a lot of like random like people having unpleasant experiences dealing with athletics happening in this movie. But it's not even like like people get hit in the head. It's un- like they're not having a good time. No one's having a good time. Yeah, it's not like uh Jesse is the one kid that doesn't know how to catch a ball. Like he oh. He okay. doesn't catch the ball properly, but that's just something that he has in common with a lot of people, I guess. Speaking. Yes, exactly. Many baseball mistakes were made. 
And maybe this is because, you know, I was a product of the budget cuts that already taken place by the 90s. I was pretty dang shocked to see archery at this gym class. But we had we had archery. We had archery. Did you have archery on the field, the same field that a bunch of people were on playing baseball? <laughs> no, it was facing a different direction. Yeah. I was noticing that the apparently boys are the only ones that are allowed to play baseball, but girls can have a bow and arrow. What? Yeah, I feel like the time bounce thing to make. Well, uh, that's because archery is a women's way to hunt. Yes. <laughs> and there's no crying in baseball. Yeah. Guys, you're yeah. Like, just fucking sob in archery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because you really, really, uh, it doesn't matter at all how well you can see when you're firing a deadly weapon at a target. <laughs> now, this, anyway, I don't know if this was just a thing that was part of the 80s or if they were setting up an archery based death for later on, but okay, did. no, just, just 80s. Yeah. Remember in the 80s when you could play archery? Wow. Remember in the 80s when you could shoot arrows at people on the same field that were playing baseball? Epridge Farm remembers. Um, I mean, is that not the plot of we need to talk about, Kevin? That didn't even take place in the 80s. He didn't have a concealed carry license for that fucking bow. Let me tell you that. The next major thing that happens in this movie, though, is Lisa's eternal party. Lisa's party is basically half of this movie. Okay. Lisa's party, which is parent sanctioned. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm sorry. I've had that party. Like, so I want, this is, this is a thing. Like, go have fun. Oh, you want to make hot dogs? That's fine. Okay. We're going to go to bed. Just don't do anything too bad. And like, you're all walking. None of you are driving. Okay. Bye. Like, yeah, no, that I've, my, we've hosted that. And this party is telegraphed at like, I don't know, scene two, scene three in the film that isn't a dream sequence. I do have to mention that when the police drop Jesse off from whatever encounter he had in the, at the gym, they say, does this belong to you? Yeah. yeah. Like, I had a meeting to assume I, that he is on the drugs. Yeah. I defend my ignorance about the party situation with the defense that I was not invited to any high school parties, parents sanctioned or not. <laughs> I, fair enough. Yeah. I'm sorry, Ben. I was not cool. Parties do hurt, though. Like they say in Invader Zim. <laughs> oh, I got to college in Philly and caught up on last time. Like, sure. But when you, if you go to a party before college, it's very painful. They also establish that Nancy's mom killed herself in the living room. She wasn't killed by Freddy coming out of the door. She wasn't sucked in by the bed. She gets pulled through the door by Freddy at the he, end of the last movie. So yeah, but that, she gets found dead in the living room and they do not go, well, she must have died from being sucked in the very small window in the front door. Wasn't that <laughs> possibly a dream sequence? Did she also like get set on fire? I don't Every remember. Dream sequence in that movie. Yeah, like she was sucked in the bed. bed. Yeah. I don't think it matters so long as the depths are creative and fun and surprising, which none of these really are. The only thing that will really matter of the description of what happens to Nancy is that Nancy is not dead. She is away in a mental institution, which will come up in the next movie. 
All you need is an actual movie. She was the protagonist of the franchise's first movie and hasn't been seen. I'm like, cool. She's in a mental institution. Yeah. That's what happens to every surviving last girl from a horror movie when she shows back up in the sequel. This one's got a doctorate. She's the best. Yeah. Yeah. Bold of them to assume that mental institutions were actually functional in the 80s. Mm-hmm. That's because they were written by people who expected them to exist growing up in the 70s. Right. A, a topic richly explored by uh, the Joker. Yes. <laughs> well, so the the other thing is that... Uh, <laughs> I wish you could see the look Jeremy's giving me. It's just the mention of the Joker movie. It's deserved. I deserve it. <laughs> Let's be clear about that. Caribbean looks very disappointed. So such disappoint. Okay, so there's all this shit going on, and Jesse is obviously shaken by this, and so his love interest uh, that is a girl, Lisa, is trying to figure out what's going on with him, and she's like, "Oh, you're psychic. This is the only explanation that you're psychic, and that you're like you can sense shit. So we're gonna go to the power plant." where fred krueger killed those 20 kids and there's something and then the boiler and blah 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 and then they find a rat in a locker and and then the demon from evil dead shows up in uh the basement of jesse's house i mean in defense to the dad and the mom and the love interest who is a woman a question mark i do feel like all of their theories whether that be drugs or mental illness or being psychic do on the face of it all sound more plausible than no a demon is just trying to homoerotically take over my body well you know i like your idea that he's probably just psychic because that fits a narrative in which he's like a cool guy who has special abilities do you know what i mean it's like a hopeful like her, yeah her idea yeah. of what it probably is is like the hopeful supernatural interpretation of it you know like have you thought about you for good maybe it could be a jason blood and etrigan type situation i mean that's what she's kind of saying to him yeah. Like, ooh, let's use your powers to save crimes. And then it's like, no, actually, the problem was within. Like, honestly, yeah. that might, I could see if this movie was made today, I could see that honestly being the direction they go, a la Malignant or 2021 Candyman, just mm-hmm. following this trend we've been seeing of horror villains given almost like superhero origin stories. Yeah. I think like she. He has an anti-chip in a lot of ways that she's like, what's wrong with you? Let's investigate. Let's work this out. Let's figure it out. And he's like, I no, I don't want to know. Yeah. And he's like, no, this isn't cool, though. This isn't like a fun thing. This is a shitty thing. From my gay thoughts. Yeah. It's like, they- what if you embrace them? She, it's like, uh, maybe I, like, I want to think that deep down Lisa knows she's not the girlfriend. She's like the best friend. Yeah, well, she kisses her best friend at some point later in the movie. I know it's on the cheek, but it's, I mean, like, the also homoerotic undertones. They start making out, and then after just a few seconds, Jesse just goes deadpan. I'm going to leave. I'm not into this. Well, his tongue sticks out. This is after he gets a monster tongue. No, it's horrific. Like, it, yeah. Yeah. And he's like, I just, I'm not ready to to eat out yet. That's true. I forgot about the monster tongue. <laughs> well, and so after they go to the monster tongue, it feels like he has to leave. And my thought was, I mean, and that might not be a bad thing in this case. But no. then he decides that he has not managed to shake Fred Krueger, that he, in fact, 
needs to go deal with this. And he, he, he doesn't want to kill Lisa. So he goes to the house of somebody he's more comfortable with killing Grady, uh, wakes Grady up in the middle of the night and is like, Hey, Grady guy who I've been in a fight with twice in this movie, who I guess is also my best friend. Could you watch me sleep and make sure that I don't kill anybody? Did we get the line where Grady says he's grounded because he pushed his grandma down a flight of stairs? So you going to Lisa's house tomorrow night? Nope. Uh, I'm grounded. How come? I threw my grandmother down a flight of stairs. Yeah, that was the scene where Grady said he couldn't go to the party because he's grounded because he pushed his grandma down a flight of stairs, but he still asks Jesse if they want to go out and have a pizza. And he's, hey man, do you want to have pizza? You want to, you know, and then Jesse gets mad and then Grady has a little fit and he's like, fine, I don't like you anyway. And then later on at the party, when <laughs> uh, Look, Jesse shows up in Grady's room. This would have been a hard stopper 25 years earlier. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he does. So Jesse does leave the party where his girlfriend is actively trying to have sex with him to go hang out in Grady's room. Grady, by the way, very straight room. So cars, very boys. Straight cat. Love his poster. He's got great yeah, poster cat positions. Poster. His bedding is like fake leather. And also he's got like that new Memphis. Do, do you, are any of you old enough to remember when like they had that Memphis grid print with the dots and the lines and the scrolls? That bedding, yes. I like, I wanted that bedding. He had I, that bedding. I had that bedding. You had that bedding. I, I had that bedding. It. Yeah, that's the one. He was one, like the bed triangle bed and the squiggles. Mm -hmm. I had yeah. bed sheets that had the logos of all the NBA teams. Nice. Come on and slam. Gonna do um, that jam. Also, it could be Lisa Frank. I don't know. Which is rainbow. Right. And yeah. purple and grid lines. Has some visual interest in the Memphis design style, like Brady's bedding. Yeah. Well, I was trying to imagine Freddie in a, like, Alisa Frank saying, they realized, oh, wait, that would actually work. Because then that's the setting of a dream. And you have horror Freddie doing horrible Freddie slasher things to Alisa Frank world. I'm like... <laughs> Damn, that's the level of imaginative and dreamy dream logic stuff that I really wish this movie did any of. But what I love is that, like, Grady literally says to him, like, you could be making out with your girlfriend right now. And instead, you're with me in my room asking me to watch you sleep. Well, and he says, he said specifically, she wants to make out with you, but you'd rather sleep with me. It's you know, what well, his... So like, like actual line. Go ahead, Ben. Oh, I'm sorry for interrupting there. Go ahead. No. Like the way someone recut the shining to make it look like a family friendly like movie. <laughs> I need someone to recut this movie to make a trailer where it just looks like a prestige period piece coming of age gay movie. I mean, he does come out at the end. Yeah. Well, well, this is the scene, yeah, where Freddy literally comes out. Yeah. This is both that was the best and the worst scene. Because, like, Freddy literally bursts out from inside of his skin in this one and, and then proceeds to kill Grady. And then I guess we're just supposed to go back to the party. Like, there's cops and adults and everything, like, trying to bust into the one room he's in. And apparently he can just open the small window there and climb out and nobody notices. Freddy's really good at going through small spaces as, and, and also, like, pulling people through small spaces. It's like a rat that way, which is why they show the rat. Mm -hmm. I don't think ah. they show the rat. I've, I'm just, I'm mm -hmm. theorizing here. 
But there's also this weird phenomenon here that happens that whenever Jesse is trying to combat Freddy, there are whale noises. <laughs> and my theory about this is that the whale noises are the like holy gayness of Jesse trying to overcome the evil of Freddy. And the reason that this whale noises is either because of legend has it unicorns make whale noises. And that's not according to legend, but according to legend, the film where the unicorns make whale noises. Okay. That makes more sense. Right. So like, this feels like people just saw narwhals and things just got really confused through a game. I don't know, phone. but you can now say legend has it and just say whatever happens to that movie. And then you'd be like, well, according to legend, you know, legend has it. Tom Cruise just frolics around a meadow without pants on. Yeah. And legend has the devil's fucking ripped. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah. Well, there you go. Abs for days. We all seen that sexy, angry, crying Lucifer foot painting. Oh, yeah. And the sculpture. There's a lot of them. Everybody wants to bang the devil. And they're right. Let he who would not bang Lucifer cast the first stone. Yeah, for real. Oh, speaking of casting stones and banging, there's a bit in the scene where the coach is dying when the coach, like, as he dies, all of the showers go off. It's a metaphor for ejaculation. Anyway, um, back to... It's not subtle. Whale sounds. That's where I was going. Whale sounds. Did you all follow the thing about the whale sounds that I was saying? No, yeah. please help me out. Uh, the whale sounds are uh, the holy gayness. Uh... Or the, the, moral, the moral right of Jesse being true to himself. Being able to... That is your theory. That is my theory. Because yeah. basically she saves... The whole story is making it seems like Oh, his girlfriend saves him, like or like Mark Patton's character is redeemed by the love of his girlfriend. She was like, "I'm not afraid of you," but really, I think what he's actually saved by is his love of himself. So rather than it being like this is like the final girl who's saving you and like somehow making you magically heterosexual, it's like no, he's saved by the fact that he's realized he's like, no, I am in fact gay, and my girlfriend is my friend, and she supports me, and now I'm okay. Yeah, and that's how he's able to right. Yeah. I don't know how the movie intended it for it to be. They probably intended for it to be, look, you saved by the power of heterosexuality. But I, I know. Way, I think that's but I way yeah. like your interpretation. Thank you. Thank you. That is definitely something that uh, Mark Patton cites the writer of this movie has having said in interviews in the documentary is that mm -hmm. uh, he, he wrote the movie not as homoerotic, but as homophobic. Uh, and in the story, it proves that any gay man can be brought back from the edge by the love of a good woman. This is apparently something he said in an interview some time ago, uh, which he, good he does not didn't to believe currently, <laughs> but he definitely is on record as having said so. Mm -hmm. who, who watches the Seinfeld episode where Elaine tries to make her coworkers straight and roots for Elaine? I don't remember that. Yeah, I don't know why the Seinfeld is always my go-to reference. But. I mean, that's Seinfeld scarred us all. Okay. It's a, very, it's a very obscure episode. I don't know why I reference it so freely. It's nah. not a good reference point. So, Freddy comes and attacks the cool. 
uh, kills a whole bunch of people. We get most of our body count here. After having penetrated his best friend, he comes to the pool to penetrate some more. Yeah, he's bad dead. <laughs> There's that one guy, the one bystander who tries to talk Freddie down. And he is braver than anyone. And then yeah. he's killed. Yeah, he's like, everything's okay. Like, he's like trying to talk down like a, a an angry dog. You know? <laughs> like, it's okay, buddy. No one's going to hurt you, buddy. I'm like, mm-hmm. do you see this is a this is a crazy stink man with like night pants? <laughs> like everything's on fire. That turned water on fire? Dude made water catch on fire. He's approaching Freddy as if he has seen Carrie the night before. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, hey, somebody just if somebody just talked to her, it would all be okay, you know? Um That's like being like, hey Carrie, I just want you to know, like I voted for you from prom queen. One guy tries to talk him down, the the pool boils. He's got flames shooting everywhere. He walks through a garden wall at one point, just leaving a pillar of flame behind. So teleporting is apparently so, one of Freddy's things here. So what you're saying, not in the mood to talk? No, he's, uh, oh, he's yeah. there to party. Um, he's there to dance. And so he, he murders a bunch of people and then kills his girlfriend. And then Freddy runs away. And she tracks him back to the furnace, which we were at previously. Where uh, Emily wanted to talk about the uh, animals with human faces, which only appear here and are never explained. Right? Yeah. What the fuck is those? So I had seen this movie before, but maybe I didn't see all of it because I do not remember the dogs with human faces. that don't really do anything. They just growl at uh lisa and she's just like okay and then she walks by and then so she's she's going through the boiler room type area whatever this is a power plant what is it powered by i don't know what i mean it makes power but there's a bunch of different like hallucinations that lisa has and she's trying to fight freddie by i don't know not believing that he's scary Mm -hmm. or something yeah, um, that was really what her approach was. Yeah. Yeah. I don't believe in you, then you can't hurt me. Yeah, she's basically downvoting Freddy at this point. But even though Freddy is being as entertaining as um, showing her all of his demon animal menagerie that he obviously cares about because he doesn't just explode them. There's a rat. The rat becomes mm-hmm. a demon. Then the rat is attacked by a cat, which also becomes a demon. And then nothing happens with that. You know, the, the the cat is not eaten by a dog, eaten by a horse, and lived in the house of Jackville. There's, you know, which would have been interesting if it did something like that. But it just ends up being her versus Freddy. He did attack and literally melt Freddy off of Jesse with the power of heterosexual love. Yeah, she yeah. just makes out with him to death. So I guess that means that Freddy is absolutely a gay icon. Like the Babadook. Are we sure he's like a gay icon like the Babadook? Or is he more like, I don't know, like Brian Singery? Because he just wants to take over young boys. Mm. Yeah, I don't like that. Yeah. I was, I was telling Alicia about this movie. And I was like, yeah, people got really mad that like they put so much homoeroticism into Freddy. And her point was, God forbid this child murderer and molester also be gay. Yeah, right? wouldn't that be terrible right <laughs> god because that is let's not forget the origin of freddy is he was kidnapping and murdering children so all of the people on the block got together and burned him alive yeah so both probably not the best gay icon and also is him 
having gay subtext really the worst thing that could have happened to this franchise? No, it's really mostly like I'm interested in this as a historical like case in terms of what happened to Mark Patton. And I really recommend the documentary because I think for folks who might be younger or who are less like aware of queer history or queer things in the period, like I think it's a really good viewer friendly, not like overly, this is not like some fucking CNN political documentary. Yeah. It's a real cultural history documentary looking at what, you know, his particular experience of being a gay man in the 80s, uh, working in the, entertain- in the entertainment industry was like. Yeah. And his own life story is really interesting. Yeah, like, it's that story that makes this movie, I guess, like, a recommend. Because, like, I'm not sure how this movie really stands on its own, except for it's just, like, legacy as part of queer cinema, but then definitely as part of Mark Patton's story. Is that yeah. is definitely worth recommending? Yeah, I think Green Queen is, is really worth looking at because... For those who don't know, it's, it is covered in the documentary Scream Queen. What happened to Mark Patton spinning out of this is that he wasn't out. Nobody was really out at that point in Hollywood. And this movie sort of outed him and his you know agents who knew this about him said, well, you know, you don't really have a future as a leading man at this point. You could be a character actor because obviously if you're going to be cast as gay, you can't really play straight. At which point his, his boyfriend at the time who was on Dynasty playing, you know, a leading man role, was getting photographed for these girls' magazines and stuff like that and was sort of hiding him, at which point they sort of broke up because he couldn't be outed as gay. Mark then proceeded to kind of leave acting and and leave his boyfriend and then find out later that he was HIV positive and his boyfriend shortly thereafter died. Mark had was not only HIV positive, but had AIDS as a result of this, got uh, cancer and tuberculosis, among other things, and somehow managed to survive all of that being, you know, mostly alone and having, you know, later moved to Mexico and was basically just out of Hollywood, was out of acting altogether for years, for decades, until the documentary about the Nightmare on Elm Street series, Never Sleep Again, sort of tracked him down. And he found out about both the sort of cult status of the movie and the sort of anti-gay blowback on the internet and in the rest of the world, but has since then started doing conventions and, and is really like known as an activist, as you see a lot in this movie, telling his story and using it to influence queer people who are a fan of horror and, and cinema and be able to to share all of the stuff about his life in the context of this fairly goofy sequel to a horror movie. Yeah. So Mark, is, Mark is the true gay icon though. Yes. Like, Mark. Is. Yes, absolutely. Mark is the gay icon. Fuck Freddie. Mark is the real icon. <laughs> yes. I have so much respect for him and I'm so glad he got to tell his story. I know this is a very glib observation after that heavy stuff. But I do find it a little ironic that in the queerest nightmare on Elm Street movie is probably Freddy at his least campy. Mm-hmm. He gets way campier after this. Yeah, that's right. Well, well I, I mean, thinking about Dream Warriors and but he's he's not terribly. But Dream Warriors is the first time he says bitch. 
Yeah. So he was inspired. He was like, I want to be as camp as like the media is acting like I must be. Like yeah. perhaps the response inspired him to become more camp. Yeah. The one other thing I wanted to say about the documentary about Scream Queen is that it is also narrated by Cecil Baldwin, who, you know, anybody who's gotten into Welcome to Night Vale and Cecil, however you feel about Welcome to Night Vale, because it's the thing that's been around for a long time, but Cecil is great. Fantastic. Okay. Because I, I think I'm the only one here on, on the show right now that has not seen Scream Queen. Is that true? I also haven't seen, I've seen like okay. parts of it, but I haven't seen the full thing yet. Okay. And it's on shutter, so everybody knows. Good right. So I have, and no. you can rent it. We paid. We we but we rented it off like YouTube or Apple or whatever. So even if you don't have shutter, you can watch it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the question now I think would be: uh, is, is this uh, is this movie feminist in any way? No. 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 I mean, I mean, Lisa is there, but this movie feels pretty wholly uninterested in exploring its women characters or just not pass the Bechtel test. No. <laughs> yeah, absolutely yeah. not. This feels like an easy, just no. I feel like Lisa is this close to being like a great, like to, to being the hero of this movie, but they go in direction with it that I'm less comfortable with. It's less her fighting Freddy and more her saving Jesse through the power of, of heterosexual love, which considering the amount of gay subtext that has been in the movie up to that point is troubling. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. I think we've talked pretty extensively about how it, it deals with LGBTQ yeah. themes. Is there anything else anybody wanted to add to that as far as this, this movie goes? <laughs> I, I, I thought it was ironic that the imagery of this character supposedly being saved by heter heterosexuality was coming out of another thing. So... There's that. I mean, cutting out of the body. Well, he's coming out of yeah. Freddy. I guess he's supposed to be coming out of his terrible gay cocoon as a big straight butterfly. Yeah. And that's that another metaphor. I, um, there's no such thing as a straight butterfly. I don't I know. think the movie has anything to say about racial and social justice. The Fu Man Jews is the closest it gets to actually addressing racism at all. And it's just bad. I mean, does Gross, being but... racist count as addressing racism? I mean, we can't say it like, cause there's movies that are not racist that are, and there are movies that are anti-racist and then there are movies that are just racist. And this is a just racist situation. It addresses yeah. racism by saying hello and shaking its hand. And then yeah. Did you meet yeah. my friend racism? He's also here. We didn't have to point him out. But so we, far out of my way to be racist you. for a, for a, background gag yeah it's literally like racism has a cameo in this movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it's literally it's just as out of left field as cheddar goblin but cheddar goblin is not racist as far as i know give me a few months i'll figure something out okay sounds good i'll, I'll get it i'll get it spread to the, i'll get it spread around we feel like we have anything interesting to say about class in this regard i think it was kind of the same class in this movie. yeah 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 they do make a point of them having uh, a real, a real hoopty of a car. They, they refer to his girlfriend as being the hot rich girl, but there isn't really anything beyond them. Nope. They're just them explaining why she has a pool. Yeah. Also, yeah. the way they honestly depicted that family, I feel like him having a shitty car was probably less about money and more just like the dad actively hating Jesse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like, the car isn't that bad though. Like the girl likes the car. Mm -hmm. She's literally like, "Well, cool car," and he's like, huh, "Deadly dinosaur." And, you know, yeah, it's not smogged, but it's a fucking 
Cadillac like convertible. It does not need a key to start, which is uh, again to quote our uh, Joel Schumacher's best Batman work. It's the car. Chicks take the car. You're trying to get under my cape, Doctor. <laughs> a girl can't live by psychosis alone. It's the car, right? Chicks love the car. <laughs> That's a real line. Someone got paid to both write and deliver that line. Look, we could talk yeah. about the yassification of Batman later. Yeah. Well, next week when we talk about Lost Boys, we can talk all about Joel Schumacher. Um, <laughs> we have the special where we just rank all the various Batman by how yass they are. Like just the various yassified to non-yassified scale. Adam West is the yassiest one. Okay. Oh, without oh, yes. doubt. Absolutely. So we've done it. There it is. The end. <laughs> I mean, Christian Bale at the bottom, right? Well, Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck. Yeah, I forgot about Ben Affleck. Yeah. yeah. Ben Affleck, Christian Bale. That's our Patreon. Dark Pattinson. Yeah. Oh, uh, Robert Pattinson, like, is so, like, he's, like, anti-Yas that comes all the way back around to being Yas with the eyeshadow. Oh, the eyeshadow and the hair and, like, yeah. fucking My Chemical Romance emo hair. Yeah. You know that he's, well, if people saw me in a, like, marching band outfit, they would look at me. So that's not quite my thing. But you know, I mean, when he was little, he was in that Red Ninja outfit. Anyway, Freddy Krueger. So uh, would we recommend people watch this movie? I'd recommend it as part of like this larger story about queerness in Hollywood and this very moving true story. But on its own, and especially if, again, like it does have its place for being a... for being like part of queer cinema in that history but just played on its own as a movie it's not very good and i definitely recommend just watching the first one again over this yeah i mean i think that this movie is mostly a companion piece to scream queen so you know exactly yes what scream queen is is talking about and it sounds like not again i haven't seen scream queen but it sounds like scream queen talks pretty in depth about this movie um, ended as a companion to Scream Queen. We do not recommend it as Nightmare on Elm Street 2. I feel like every one of these franchises has one of these, right? There's mm-hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street 2, there's Halloween 3. That They're like, mm-hmm. and, and I, uh, Friday the 13th and New Blood, which are all just like, what if it wasn't our trademark villain? Or what if like it didn't go like this? Uh, what if the thing that made us famous, we just didn't do that? And I will say this for this movie. It is not the worst nightmare on Elm Street. That belongs squarely to five, the dream child, which is horrible and does feature Freddy, but in an almost entirely passive role. I was imagining like a little baby Freddy. So it's just like this fucked up little baby with a little baby sweater and a baby fedora. The idea is the baby claw hand. That they're going to be giving birth to the child of Freddy. And that is sort of like they're trying to do a Rosemary's baby thing. And it's bad. It's very bad. But I mean, cause it's, it's basically like you could watch one, three, four. What were they going for that seed of Chucky money? It was well before seed of Chucky. It was just like they were out of ideas and, you know, they because uh, Dream Warriors and Dream Master, which are three and four, three especially is very good. And four is, you know, the sequel to three, which is okay but less good i think and then you get to the end of the series and i really like new nightmare freddy's dead is okay but dream child is, is real bad so like this one is not fights jason yeah uh <laughs> not, not strictly <laughs> speaking 
a nightmare on Elm Street film. But yeah, this one is not, it's a difficult one to recommend. I think as an artifact, it is really interesting to look at. And along with Scream Queen, it is interesting to look at. But on its own, it's just, it's, it's not a very good movie. It is an interesting movie, but yeah, it's not the best. I mean, keeping that in mind, let's go ahead and go to our recommendations. Alana, what do you have to recommend for people? Well, you should definitely watch Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, which you don't have to watch. Nightmare on Elm Street to see it. My other recommendation actually is going to be a movie that's a very short movie by my friend, Kevin Marr, that you can watch online. It's on YouTube. It's called Freddy's Fail, The Rise and Fall of a Nightmare on Elm Street. And it is a, a short movie looking at the history of the popularity of Freddy Krueger as not just a character, but like a marketing uh, a brand and an, an icon. Like he was, Freddy Krueger for a while was on all kinds of consumer cr- products that one could purchase. Yeah. Like, not only was there like a horror hotline, but they were just really merchandising the hell out of him. And it's sort of, and he sort of puts together a case as to like why that happened, how that happened, and how it led the character to not be so great after the overexposure. And it's a really funny short little movie. So check that out. Nice. The name of the my friend's channel is, is Atomic Aid. Like Abraham Lincoln, but made out of Adams. So Atomic Thanks. Abe Productions on YouTube. Atomic Abe. All right. Yeah. I, yeah. Ben? I will recommend something that is just holy and celebratorily queer and wonderfully so. And that is Our Flag Means Death. Yes. I'm so angry that it hasn't been renewed for a season two yet. And I don't know why. But yeah, it is. It knows it's queer. It is queer at every level. And it is just so, so wonderfully romantic and joyous and also hard, rip your heart out, but in a good way. No, like seriously, I would tell people like, like, Ilana, so what's keeping you going these days? And I'm like, two things, the insurgence of the American labor movement and our flag means death. Those are the only, <laughs> it's, it's so fucking wonderful. I covered it on my podcast. So we pitched the show in the beginning of the episode. So if you want to listen to Graphic Policy Radio, really recent episode on Our Flag Means Death and sort of give you the non-spoiler pitch as to why the show is awesome for about the first 12 minutes. And then we go into a really in-depth conversation, including lots of pirate history facts, especially queer pirate history facts. Nice. The show isn't only good because Taika Waititi is a fucking salt and pepper spicy snack, but um, it helps. It but, does help. There's a lot. I mean, there's a lot really awesome going on. We have the non-binary character played by a non-binary actor. We have um, Reese Darby. Yes, Reese Darby, of course. Anyway, uh, but what do I recommend? I was going to say Lost Boys. We talk about the Lost Boys. We'll talk about that soon. Stay tuned for a podcast about that movie. Also, if you want to watch something that was maybe originally intended to be gay but then not intended to be gay, but then he turned around and was actually incredibly gay. The the dubbed version of the anime Yoroiden Samurai Troopers, Ronin Warriors, which was on TV on Saturday mornings for a while in the early 90s, that has a lot of subtext. And I feel like by trying to make it rock and roll, I'm not sure what the story is behind it, but they tried to make it rock and roll. But this is a magical boys show about dudes that get armor that it's made out of flowers and they are samurai and and they thrust a lot. So that's fun. The original show, Yoroiden Samurai Troopers, really comes off as some kind of traditional Japanese, dare I say, propaganda or, you know, something that's a little bit more just 
straightforward, boring, but the dubbed version makes it more gay and therefore delightful. It's what I, what I would recommend is something completely unrelated to uh, this film. I stumbled on a thing that I had heard about and I decided to watch the first episode of it. And then three hours later at two in the morning, I had watched the entire six issue or six episode series. And that is We Are Lady Parts. If you haven't seen Lady Parts, it's about a punk band of Muslim girls that's sort of told through the, the eyes of one of these characters who she loves to play music, but anytime that she plays in front of a crowd, uh, she gets incredibly nauseous and unfortunately starts vomiting and possibly having stuff coming up the other end as well. Oh no. Um, but she gets recruited by this uh, group of, you know, hardcore girls who are, are doing this punk band and putting it together. And it, it's told so, like, it's such an incredibly intelligent and funny show. And at the same time has this level of, of authenticity of characters that you're like, oh, clearly these are like people that this person knows they're fashioned after real people. There's no question watching it because, you know, one of the four girls in the band is queer and has sort of this, you know, relationship with a, a non-Muslim girl in the story that is a big sort of point in the first season there. And all of the actresses are, are incredible. And the show is, it's hard to, it's hard to underestimate how funny it is while at the same time being incredibly serious about a lot of stuff about discrimination and then the way uh, that we, we treat Muslim people and specifically Muslim women as a, you know, Western society. And I think none of that is better exemplified than one of their songs that is played a couple times in the series, which is Voldemort under my headscarf, which is uh, a song about how people are sure that people, that they're hiding something under their headscarf and that it's totally Voldemort because that's definitely a thing that happened in the first Harry Potter book with a character. So, oh my God. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh. So they really push up against that stuff and, and keep going in interesting ways. And yeah, it's only six episodes on Peacock. I like literally I started watching it and couldn't stop. It was, I was like, I, I got to get through this. It's so good. But yeah, we are lady parts, extremely good show. Um, nice. Yeah. I, I think that about wraps it up for us. Alana, do you want to let people know where they can find out more about you and your podcast and well, everything else you're doing? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm the host of Graphic Policy Radio, where comics and politics meet. Um, love to have all of these folks who have actually either been on my show or will be on. I know Meg's coming on soon to talk about the work of Neil Adams. I need to solidify that on my calendar. But yeah, we uh, talk about comics and comics-adjacent media. Um, the Our Flag Means Death episode is a bit of an outlier. The show was just that good that I had to cover it anyway, even though it breaks my normal format. I also have Deep Space Dive, which is my Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. We just posted an episode of Anthony Oliveria where we really talk about religion and DS9 episode titled, Is the Space Pope Catholic? And as for me, I'm on Twitter a little bit too much at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Ilana underscore Brooklyn. And actually, I, I will connect you with meaningful, useful things you can do to help make the world like be less terrible. So that, that's another service that I offer to society. You let me know. There's lots of stuff people can do. Yeah. Thank you for your service. <laughs> uh, as for the rest of us, you can find Emily at Megamoth on Twitter and at Mega underscore Moth on Instagram. And then Megamoth.net. Ben is on Twitter at Ben McCon and on their website at BenConComics.com where you can pick up all of their books, including the new Immortals Phoenix Rising graphic novel, Great Beginnings, and the Glad Award-nominated Renegade Rule graphic novel. And finally for me, 
You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jrome 58 and my website at jeremywhitley.com, where you can check out everything that I write. And of course, the podcast is on Patreon at Progressively Horrified, our website at progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm, and on Twitter at proghorrorpod. And we would love to hear from you there. Uh, and tell us what you think about this episode, about this movie, about what else you'd like to see, because we're always looking for new movies to watch. And of course, we would also love to hear from you in the form of reviews. So if you enjoy this podcast, please, wherever you're listening to it, go ahead and give us a five-star review to help other people find the podcast. And I do, again, want to thank Alana for joining us. Alana, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Always love talking with you guys. Thank you so much for joining us. And now that we've talked about Freddy's uh, Revenge, we can talk about Dream Warriors sometime. Yeah. Yeah. I, have a dr- I really want to talk about Dokken, so just be prepared for just nothing but Dokken the entire episode. I'm prepared. I think Emily is down for Dokken cast. Oh, my God. Thank you. <laughs> Dokken quarter, Dokken show. They're, they're really good guys. Dokken Dokken? Oh, we're Dokken. Oh, that's good. <laughs> thank you, as always, to Emily and Ben for joining me. And thank you for listening. And until next time, stay horrified. Progressively Horrified is created by Jeremy Whitley and produced by Alicia Whitley. This episode featured the Horror Squad, Jeremy, Ben, and Emily, along with special guest Alana Levin. All opinions expressed by the commentators are solely their own and do not represent the intent or opinion of the filmmakers, nor do they represent the employers, institutions, or publishers of the commentators. Our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Colo 6 and was provided royalty-free from Pixabay. If you like this episode, you can support us on Patreon, and you can also get in touch with us on Twitter at proghorrorpod or by email at progressivelyhorrified at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Also can find uh, fan art for Our Flag Means Death on my Twitter. It's the only art that I've posted lately. Oh, sure. Let me go find that. Yeah.